Good morning. Thank you all for welcoming me back home today. It is very good to be with you. I appreciate Pastor Matt for getting sick. (laughs) It's wonderful to be here with you. It was about a year and a half ago that you all commissioned me out to uh, do the work of ministry outside of the church where I've been serving as a hospice chaplain. Those who may be unfamiliar with hospice, we meet people at the point where their doctors realistically expect that they have about six months left to live. And we are able, it's an interdisciplinary team, it's medically based, so there's a nurse who supervises the case and reports to our doctor. And I'm part of that team with a social worker, uh, nurses' aides, and myself as a chaplain. And we help to support patients and their families through life's final journey. And after serving here at Bethel and as a, uh, one of the staff pastors for seven years, this job and this role has been a radical shift. Uh, our church community certainly has done hospice work together uh, as it's come through our community that we've lost our members. But to have that be your full-time vocation, it's a change. It's been a major change. And I think that it's especially special on this Pentecost day to have a statement of the ministry that is happening outside of the walls of the church, to come back and remind us of, of who we are in the world. On this day when we celebrate that the disciples actually took their message out into the community, on Pentecost Day and were heard publicly for the very first time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In those days after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples had drawn together and their time of being together had been for their comfort and for their support and to really work out their new identity. Who are they now? And we, today on Pentecost Day, we know that we have those times when coming together is to figure out who we are to be strengthened for the time ahead. And it's too simplistic to say this is like our upper room because our doors are open. And we have this message and and this ministry of hospitality, of bringing others in. But the disciples hadn't worked that out yet. They were still keeping to themselves. And we have that in our lives too. When coming into a place of worship is a safe and sacred time. It's a time apart. We bring whatever struggles it is that we're going through in our own lives and the familiar place, the familiar faces, And the familiar rituals that happen here gather us and comfort us. Safe and sacred space. We need that in our lives. But we don't stay here. On Pentecost Day, the disciples headed out into the streets of Jerusalem where they could be heard and seen. They were ready for public ministry again. And we, too, live lives where we are called out of our safety zone. We spend a lot of our time in places that are not particularly safe or sacred. Even places that we once considered incredibly safe, we now see danger 
And part of that is because we've had atrocities in bizarre and unlikely places. Malls, schools, churches. Our public life is, is filled with the concept that there could be risk around us. And I'd say that not to increase the terror, but just to recognize the world that we live in. And part of that is how readily available information is to us. We're, news from around the world is just as available to us as any news of our local community. If it's happening in our neighborhood or Paris and Belgium suddenly feel incredibly close. And life itself, it often feels more mundane than sacred. We live on a kind of hamster wheel of routines and we're just trying to get through the week, the year, the schedule. It doesn't always feel sacred. It often takes a miracle to stir up the sacred. Even if you're intentionally looking for a spiritual experience, it, it takes time for that to settle in. For those who advise on spiritual retreats, especially longer spiritual retreats, you know, it's a very common advanced retreat to take an eight-day retreat, a little bit more than a full week to bookend two Sundays, if possible. And for people who advise on a retreat that long, they, they say that it often takes about three days Incidentally, that's pretty similar to a camp, a week at camp. So just that's a spiritual retreat. But people who lead spiritual retreats often say that it takes about three days for the, the mind and the spirit to actually disconnect from the regular life that you're, you're stepping out of for that week. And it's actually very, very common for a good portion of those three days to be spent asleep. And that's considered a good spiritual practice to, to rest the body, thoroughly saturate the body, rest the body, the mind, and the spirit so that you final four to six days of your retreat can actually be being refilled and renourished. But an eight-day retreat, we don't do that very often. I thoroughly encourage us to try it, but... In real life, spiritual experiences sneak up behind us more often than, than we intentionally set out to experience them. It's in that rare snow day blizzard where you're cooped up and you finally realize that you've rested. Or on a Monday holiday when you thoroughly breathe and you exhale all the business of the week in the weekend. A week of vacation which makes you realize that maybe you can survive another year. Those are the moments of spiritual renewal when we truly breathe. We gather in a place like this so that God help us, maybe we can breathe once a week. We can be refilled by the spirit of life and be lifted up. We don't have to wait it's a time to pause and to be filled by the Spirit. And we gather intentionally. And even if there may have been some episodes of coercion to get some people here today, it's still essentially a free will activity. <laughs> we are essentially opting into being here. 
that's a big difference from the role that I now play. As a minister, there's some sense that people are opting in to participate in what it is you have to offer. And in hospice, no one really wants to opt in to hospice. Sometimes we're a welcome relief to an individual or to a family who's grateful for the support, but not the circumstances. And so to minister to people who would really rather not have to be there, it's a challenge. It, it's a very, it's a different. We all face that. Ministry is different outside the walls of the church. We each have our own calling and our way of being. Our passage for today is a gentle passage. It's not a flashy miracle. It's a chance for Jesus to breathe courage into the days ahead. It's spiritual. This passage that we read from John, it's often called the Pentecost in John. It's not an exact retelling of the Pentecost story which we read in Acts. It's a preparation for that event. It's Jesus at this point in his life is is coming toward the end of his life, and he's wrapping up his business with the disciples. And it's a preparation for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the absence of Jesus. It's a preparation for what might fill the emptiness after Jesus is gone. Philip comes with a sense of emptiness already, a dissatisfaction. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Philip is a relatively young man, starting out, following a leader, learning the ways of this particular leader. And he's complaining about the same kind of hollowness and emptiness that plagues many of us at different stages of our lives. And as I talk about that a little, I just want to make sure that I'm clear and I differentiate. There's different kinds. When we talk about emptiness in our life, there's different kinds. What I'm addressing here is the sense of longing for something a little bit more. It's not a devastating, devastating sense of emptiness. We're talking about two different animals, and I certainly want to recognize that there's a level of desperation which requires respect and treatment and love, a, a real, true medical problem of depression or, or anxiety. What we're talking about also is, is a more common experience that's shared through, by all of us at different stages, a sense that there's something more to be had out of this life, the kind of emptiness that leads us forward to taking more steps, not the kind that traps us where we are. Just want to be sure that we as a community recognize that, that there's a difference and that those who are in need of attention and care deserve to be lifted up, not to be reprimanded. I'll reprimand Philip a little. Not, not really. He's at a perfectly natural stage of life saying, I'm just not there yet. I need something more. I need a glimpse of something more to achieve. Jesus sighs deeply. You can't see who it is you're meant to be. That is not the kingdom of God. 
Jesus has spent the previous 14 chapters of John and his entire ministry teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. That life is right here among us. It's abundant and expansive and free. Old chains are broken and old brokenness is healed. Jesus is at a point where he's at the facing the end of his life. Danger is crowding in on the disciples and on Jesus, and political authorities are out to get him. This is already established. He already knows this. He knows that his life is in very, very real and present danger. And he's trying at this point to pass on these kinds of values to his closest friends, to focus on what really matters. About a year ago, there was a fantastic piece in the New York Times written by uh, David Brooks, where he talks about the difference between our resume values and our eulogy values. Many of us in our professional lives, in our adult lives, we spend a lot of time focusing on our resume values, building up a sense of who we are in marketing ourselves. Quite honestly, some of us do that to the detriment of our eulogy values, the way we want to be remembered by the people that we love and care about the most. And if we actually think about Jesus' life, he has a lot more credibility on the eulogy values. Absolutely, that was a stupid thing to say. But the resume values are not so much. Leadership skills, those disciples were a little... You know, a little out of control sometimes. He, you know, didn't really accumulate any wealth, no status, no rank, no job title. But he invested himself entirely and thoroughly on eulogy values. So Jesus answers Philip that sense of discontent with, with honesty and redirecting him. He says to him, I do what I do because of who I am. And if you're watching me, if your eyes are on Jesus, you're seeing the whole identity of God. And you can be like that too. You can reorient your vision so that you reorient yourself. God reorients you. But Philip is stuck with an unsatisfied feeling. Jesus is reminding him through this text, sometimes the cure for a feeling is doing. And this is where the core of integrity comes in. Feeling discontent. How are you doing on honoring others? How are you doing on honesty? How are you doing on fidelity? On charity? Jesus tells his disciples that if discontent is sneaking in, there's probably room for improvement. Have you ever heard the motivational statement, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean? No one worked in retail? Come on. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Jesus is telling them that with a spiritual inventory. How about doing something? How about some works? 
here if you're feeling a little discontent. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that although his own ministry is wrapping to a close, that there's still work to be done. The work of the kingdom is not yet finished at the end of a lifetime. I'm captivated by these words that he says. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. The life of Jesus is totally and completely unique. When we say that the presence of God was fully realized in one person at one time, one living, breathing presence. Scholars call this the scandal of particularity. God made God's self fully present to us in a particular time, a particular place, a particular person who was of one gender, one ethnicity, and one culture. A scandal of particularity. That moment, he's gone. He's gone to the Father. And new problems have arisen. New situations. And we read some of these situations are so different from the world that we now live in. We read in the Acts text some words that are disturbing. I was very pleased to hear the translation that Jan read from. Even upon my slaves, both men and women. The worldview of the time, slavery was an accepted fact, a world where slavery is no longer practiced, has unimaginable consequences, something that the church has had to wrestle, to, to, dip, to explore and to discover what that means. By the time the evangelist wrote these words down, this story, Jesus' followers had faced situations that Jesus did not address. They saw discord in the church. They experienced the death of the first disciples. They saw the destruction of the temple. And somehow, they had peace. That the leading of the Spirit of the living God allowed them peace. That this particular group of people could have any kind of peace and hope is a great testimony to the power of the resurrection. For the traumatic execution of a radical religious figure to spark a nonviolent counter movement and a community of social change is not the norm. And yet, this community became known not for their anger, but for their love. It allowed them to face the challenges that were different than the ones that were faced by Jesus. When I was a teenager in the 90s, it was when the phrase, what would Jesus do, was popularized. Now, I, it's a very nice motivational thought to, to evaluate what Jesus would do is a beautiful thing. It, it is a practice that we should take. But there's a counterpoint to that slogan that covers up 
how complex those, those discernments really are. Because we do face ethical and moral quandaries which are different from Jesus' own context. Medical ethics of organ transplantation. What would Jesus do? It's not clear. Somehow, when we're looking for Jesus in our, in our quandaries today, it's almost like looking in a funhouse mirror. You're only going to see some version of yourself, somehow contorted. There's so many questions that are hard to answer. We need a community to discern what path that's consistent with Jesus' identity is going to lead us to the right and just answer. One of the challenges that faced the early Christians in a very fundamental way, very devastating way, was death. No one is comfortable with the idea of death. I'm in the business, let me tell you. No one likes to talk about it. We all like to pretend it's not going to happen, and yet we all realize that our bodies are fragile. But in his earthly ministry, there is no record of Jesus ever encountering death and not turning it around. So in Jesus' absence, when the Christian community started to experience the death of their members, they had to rely fully on the Holy Spirit to guide them. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, they will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What greater works might the church be called to when it's losing its founding members one by one? What greater works might God have in store for us Over time, the Christian community became known for a devotion to the suffering members and for caring for the dead. The right, proper, respectful burial of the dead and for attending to people in their final moments. A greater work was being done. So, What we do is consistent with who Jesus was in Jesus' identity. But the actual activities have their own scandal of particularity. The way of life made visible in Jesus is traced through time, but in new ways. We're stuck somehow holding together assorted pieces of our own lives and our life together into some kind of whole. And the church has struggled with this. We know what a difficulty it is to hold together the pieces of our own life, and yet we know that we belong to a community, this Christian community, which drags with it a ragged, ragged legacy. The question how can we faithfully follow Christ, 
what does it mean for a community to become Christian, has become for many times of history more about how can we protect ourselves or how can we protect our power. And slowly, 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 the breath of the Spirit was caged up. Pentecost is often called the birthday of the church. And those of us who are part of the church know that far too often that we are not what Jesus called us to be. We spend too much and share too little. We judge too many and love too few. We wait too long and we act too late. And this isn't just in small things. It's deep, devastating wounds. The church has wounded her children deeply. We here in the Boston area know this incredibly deeply with the scars of the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, certainly not limited to the Catholic Church, but shown to spectacular horrific nature in the Catholic Church. That is deep, deep consequences. I face the consequences of that on a nearly daily basis with Catholic with Catholic patients who refuse the ministries of the church because they are so deeply wounded, not at a personal level, but just so deeply disappointed with their church. Devastating, devastating consequences. We as a Christian community, the church itself, carries with it a history of racism and colonization. It's broken the world. Broken the world. We have participated in the silencing and exclusion of women half the population have been under subjugation. The history of the church is the history which is deeply, deeply traumatized. All of those things are barriers to participation in the life of the community. They're walls to the breath of the Spirit. And we've been living like, we've been acting like we're going to live forever. And that we have forever to fix these problems and to clean up these messes. Quite honestly, we don't know how much time we have left. For, For many, it's already too late. The damage is done. And here we are with a broken system, the damage and disease already in our corporate body. And if we don't turn around the damages of time, we don't start living more fully and redemptively, we might never recover. One of the things I've learned in hospice is that, essentially, we die the way that we live. 
There is some redemption that's possible at the end of life, some renewal of relationship, forgiveness, certainly. But if you lived a lonely and isolated life, you're very likely to die a lonely and isolated death. And if you've invested in giving to others, to loving and being loved, being fully present to others, it's more likely that others will be fully present with you to the end of your life. So the time to turn that around for a good death is now. It's time to start evaluating your life and to live the kind of life that you want supporting you at the end. And this is a lesson for the church. If we don't start living the way we want the story to end, we may destroy ourselves. We need to be reminded to live like Jesus lived and to focus on those eulogy values for our community. How do we want our community to be known and recognized and remembered? What is the living, breathing presence of God in this particular place and time? The way of life made visible in Jesus is punctuated by errors and successes. And some of them, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between. We each have our own judgments about what was good and what was bad, but the direction still has obvious joys and sorrows. But what does it mean for people of faith to follow the way that Christ leads them? As we live in our own scandal of particularity, our particular self, our particular identity and ability, our particular place and time and resources, somehow trying to be the body of Christ in this time and this place, claiming space here on this earth, where the spirit of truth is leading and guiding us, and calling us to greater things. The time is here and now to live, most fully live, and to follow the way of Christ. Amen.